Hey, 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 guys. I'm Kat. And I'm Alicia. And we are Julie and the Podcasters. We feel like we've been crying in a room for 25 years. How is that even possible? How is it? Maybe it's because we went so long without Julie and the Phantoms in our life. I think that's what it is. And can you believe that we fell in love with a show about three ghosts that are in a band together? I know. It feels like it's 1995 and I'm falling in love with Casper for the first time all over again. I swear. Like I was waiting for Devin Sawa to pop up. It's like my nostalgic teenage dreams coming to life again. Yeah, Luke really is the Troy Bolton of my dreams. And he's dead, which almost makes it better because it's spooky season. I know. Right? <laughs> All right. So, Alicia, I feel like before we get into the podcast, we should tell our listeners why we even started it to begin with. You know what I mean? Like, why are we here? Yeah. And that's a good question to answer because why are we here? I mean, I think the obvious reason is we love Julie and the Phantom so much and we wanted to keep talking about it because there's so many layers and so many amazing things to discuss about this show, right? Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things with Julie and the Phantoms is we just couldn't stop talking about it. First day that I found that show, it consumed my life in pretty much every way. Me too. And I really thought that maybe I was the only one. And then I went online and I realized that this is like crazy. It's a phenomenon. Like people are obsessed, just as obsessed as we are. So why not give everyone an outlet to keep talking about it as much as possible? Exactly. And people want to talk about it. The discussions are still happening. I think we're a month into the show streaming on Netflix. And people still want to talk about Julie and the Phantoms. Yes, people are still talking about it. So the question is, why? Why do we think that people are connecting so deep to this show? Yeah, exactly. I think the initial um, aspect was that it was a teen show. It didn't get very much marketing from Netflix. You know, there wasn't a lot of buzz surrounding it. And then practically overnight, the songs were going up on the Apple soundtracks. You know, people want to, they want to talk about the Easter eggs that are in every episode. They want to talk about Luke, Reggie, and Alex and how adorable they are. There's so much to talk about. The cast that seemingly came out of nowhere. I agree. I think that this show is cast so flawlessly and it really brings it to life in, a, in an extremely special way. And it also kind of feels like a warm hug, right? It's it's this world where toxic masculinity doesn't exist and, and diversity is there and things are accepted and people are just loving on each other. And I, I, I love that. And it's creatively as a writer myself um kind of on a deeper level i just love seeing something that is coming of age and is more youthful but is also so fully fleshed out and that's so nice to see something that i just feel like kids shows these days are really surface level and this show goes into things it goes into grief it goes into you know the dynamics of friendship and it really character develops and it just inspires me it makes me want to you know hop on my laptop and create something like that and on top of that, I mean, Kenny Ortega is such a legend. And to see him do something separate from Disney is really kind of fantastic because I feel like we've seen him do so many great things with High School Musical and Descendants. You know, those, those are great film franchises, but Netflix gave him an opportunity to kind of go in a direction where it's still a kid's show, but he's allowed to kind of grapple with things that I feel like Disney was 
wasn't too comfortable with. Like we have, you know, openly gay characters and we have grief and we have therapy and mental health issues. And you're never, you didn't see that on High School Musical. You didn't see that really in Descendants. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I think Netflix has something really special here with Kenny Ortega. And I think they had the opportunity to come out with a new line of these teen tween shows that we needed 10 years ago, that we needed five years ago, that Disney just unfortunately is not delivering anymore. And I think there's an assumption made with these teen shows that they have to be surface level, they have to be juvenile in order to reach that audience. And that's not necessarily true. You know, just because you're talking to a younger audience doesn't mean that you have to dumb things down. And it doesn't mean that you have to hide important topics such as sexuality and grief. These are important topics and they need to be in these shows, especially for younger kids. I mean, growing up, I was in the peak age of Disney, you know, high school musical. I went and saw the last movie in theaters, um, Wizards of Waverly Place, Hannah Montana, you know, Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. Oh man, you were in it. I was the target audience. And I think as I got older and, you know, I, I think one of the last shows that I watched was Jesse and Austin and Allie. And I just started to lose that, you know, importance of the story for me. I just, I couldn't stay with it because there was a lot of surface level comedy and stories that didn't necessarily connect with me anymore. And I think, yeah, it just became this thing that they had to dumb it down for the viewers, which is not necessarily true. Because I think shows like Julie and the Phantoms proves that you don't necessarily have to connect with a younger audience. You can connect with a younger audience from 10 years ago again. And I think with Netflix and Julie and the Phantoms, they have an opportunity to connect with kids of all age, which is really important. And especially with shows, you know, teen shows ranging so much now, we have Julie and the Phantoms, which is for the same age group that Riverdale is which are completely different shows. Wild. Yeah. Wild to think they're supposed to be the same age. Can you believe that? The same age group. You know, you go to a Riverdale um, convention, you will find 13-year-olds there listening. Like, they want stories. And if you're pumping out shows that where the teens are acting like they're 25 years old, their parents are never around or they're dead, that's not necessarily what kids need. They need more shows that teach them to be kids. And not to go on, you know, murder, crime-solving sprees and deal with their family's fortune at the ripe age of 17. Oh, Riverdale. That's a whole nother podcast, but oh, Riverdale. We won't get into it, but if we're going to shade a show on this podcast, it's going to be Riverdale. It's going to be Riverdale. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, I think it's so relatable. And in, in its own way, it's kind of timeless. Um, maybe I'm just an oldie, you know, I'm, I'm well past the, the teenage, um, demographic, but I like when shows kind of are able to integrate technology and how we've, um, sort of moved forward with that in the years that have, you know, passed, but it doesn't rely too heavy on that, you know, because I think the Phantoms are from 1995, it sort of balances that. I just hate when everything is all about like iPhones and text messages. And I don't know, it just, it gets under my skin because I don't feel like it's going to age well because we're constantly changing. So why not keep things as timeless as possible? And I just think Kenny Ortega just understands how to do that. And he's, he's done it again, probably maybe in the best way he's ever done with Julian the Phantoms. So kudos to him. Living legend. I think this is the combination of all those years of all these movies he's done, you know, for adults 
for Disney coming together into this one epic project. And I do, I think it, it could be a really timeless project that we look back on in 10 years and go, you know, this still stands up. The messages in this stand up. And I think it's nice that the technology isn't relied on necessarily as much as some other shows would with, you know, the aspect of 1995 and then 2020. The ghosts know what phones are. Like Alex knows what what a phone is. Yeah, they catch they catch on quickly because they are 17 year olds. You know what I mean? So they they get it. But it doesn't it isn't there isn't this whole like I just feel like there could have been this whole subplot with the guys learning technology and figuring out what YouTube is. And yeah, there are little like quips and remarks, you know, throughout the series about that just for comic relief. They're like, I don't know what streaming is. I don't know what that means that we went viral kind of thing. And that that's funny, but it um it isn't like based around that. And maybe that sounds like a really weird thing to find important. But I just feel like when stories are timeless, they always work better. And Kenny Ortega just seems to really understand that. And he's so meticulous with everything he does and so hands-on with everything he does. And I just think that shows even down to the cast. Um, I mean, I just feel like if this show wasn't cast as spectacularly as it was, I just don't think that, I mean, the show would still be great, but I don't know if it would resonate um, as much, at least for me personally. The actors really just bite into these roles so, so well. Yeah, and I definitely think uh, we should get into the casting for a moment here because it's a little unusual, the process that they went through. And I, you know, almost so unusual that I wish they would release like a three-hour documentary on how the show came to be because the casting process for this just sounds incredible. You know, if for anyone that doesn't know, Kenny Ortega and the cast and crew, they decided from the very beginning that the characters and the actors had to be a band first and foremost because it's Julie and the Phantoms and that's such a huge part of the show which is really rare for a tween show teen show in this day and age you know a lot of stuff is just pre-recorded it's auto-tuned it's it's not a huge deal if they can't sing I mean we could talk about Zac Efron in the first high school musical movie (laughs) I was Oh, I was just devastated to know that he was not the person singing in that first movie. So it makes a huge difference. And to hear that they went through the process of casting a band first and put such an emphasis on them having to be able to play their own music, having to be able to sing, you know, that's that's huge. Because when we're hearing that first, you know, few bars of each song, we know that that's them playing. And it just makes the experience that more astounding in the end. Right. I totally agree. I think it resonates so much um, better with it being that way. And I love knowing that when I'm listening to the like the recordings, I'm listening to them. I'm listening to the guys play those instruments. I'm listening to them and their voices. I know like Jeremy Shada, who plays Reggie, is in his own band on his own time. Um, So that that's just I don't know. It's just really incredible. I think it allowed them to look outside their, you know, normal casting groups and find this amazing talent especially with Madison Reyes, to answer a casting call and get this role um, simply for her voice and her amazing acting. Uh, I just think that, yeah, it's, it's a good way to find new and fresh talent. And I know that the way they put the band together first was really how we got the chemistry of Julie and the Phantoms in the show because they just clicked immediately as a band. And he's there. Kenny Ortega was there. He was making sure that the cast was right and I just think that that 
like there is there just can't like enough can't be said for a creator being so hands-on like I just I don't know I just find that like so rich it just it makes such a difference when someone cares that much about their project and I don't think if he wasn't sitting right there saying okay this person is right and this person is right you know and when you hear interviews or you watch him he can remember all these people's like first audition and you know they probably went through like nine different auditions but he remembers like every single one that all these kids had I just think that's incredible I mean he really is like an idol for anyone who is creatively minded yeah, truly. He sees the potential in these actors that we just haven't had the opportunity to see on screen very much. And I think this is a great example of him just knowing that these four would work and, you know, them matching up and really running away with that. Then we got this show. So, yeah. And with them being so multifaceted, it gives them an opportunity to possibly tour at some point if they want to. And I mean, for me personally, if it was more kind of high school musical-esque, it wouldn't be something that I would really ever be interested in going to just because I'm a little too old for that. But knowing that it would literally be like going to a show with like people like playing instruments and rocking out and jamming out, like that's something that I would actually go and attend and have a blast doing. And, you know, I guess depends on if we can get a season two, if we ever see them on tour. So let's keep talking about this show as much as possible. <laughs> Yeah, because we really want a season two. I I don't know if people have seen, but Netflix is, yeah, they've been a little brutal lately with the cancellations. Sophomore seasons have not had the greatest year. Real, real brutal. It's been really brutal. Um, there's been a couple of shows canceled in the last couple of days. Um, one in particular that I think is the closest to Julie and the Phantoms in terms of style and age group. Um, so it's really a matter of, you know, the cast is out here doing the most that they can. The producers, the crew, they're on social media. They're trying to keep us connected. And I'm seeing how many people are rewatching the show. I know how many times I've rewatched the show in the last month. Same. And I just hope it's enough because I would love to put on a Sunset Curve shirt and go to a concert at the right page of 22 and cheer Dude, along. Dude, I'm ready. That sounds so rad. I'm ready. I am so ready. And I mean, Kenny Ortega said himself, like with Netflix, it is all about like you guys, the fans watching and streaming the songs because Netflix is all about those views. They really are because they have to basically weigh in on if a show is worth paying for um you know they're their own studio they pay for everything netflix so it's like is this worth you know spewing out the money for another season and i think hands down it would be such a huge mistake to not give julian the phantoms a second season and third season and even fourth season and you know there's always the question of if we get another season how long exactly will this show go for because the streaming service there's a history there of not giving series too many seasons so it's just a matter of like let's go for the first you know first and second season and then see where that takes us but yeah I think we're out here doing the most that we can and hopefully Netflix sees that yeah this is this is our effort right here starting this podcast and continuing to talk about it and hopefully um reaching enough people to talk with us and engage with us and just keep the vibes going and keep the buzz strong for as long as possible because we really we really really want to see more yeah exactly
we should maybe talk about the pilot, the first episode. We should get into we should get into Wake Up. Yeah, the episode that started it all. Yes, the episode that began it all. I love that. And what a way. What a way to start things. What a way. I you know what? From the very beginning, this is one of the best pilots I've ever seen. And I've watched a lot of television over the years, but this pilot is one of the solid, you know, from start to finish the structure of it, the execution. It's it's really astounding what they put together with this to just bring us into this world um, in the way that they did. Absolutely. So just to get into specifics, just to make it clear, it's season one, episode one, Wake Up, that we're talking about today. It's directed by Kenny Ortega, the man, the myth, the legend himself. The teleplay is by Dan Cross and David Hogue. And um, the episode description on Netflix is as follows. A year after her mother's death, Julie plays an old CD and three ghosts suddenly appear. The guys from the 1990s band Sunset Curve. And for Netflix, they don't usually do descriptions very well, if I say so myself. But that is pretty much, I mean, that's what happens. That happens. I, I like how they set that up. You know, they're just like, these are guys. They're ghosts. They're from a band from the 90s. That's all you really need to know. Personally, that sold that, you know, for me, that sold it right away. So I know, really, just like that tagline, I'm in. Yeah, there's <laughs> ghosts. They're boys. Okay. Cute boy ghosts and music. Uh, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do this. So speaking of music, I mean, what a way to open a series, right? Can we just talk about this? Yes. Okay. Even before we hear the first few notes of Now or Never, it's just the the opening scene of seeing that Orpheum sign, you know, humming to life. And then we hear an amp plug in and then we hear Alex. I think just that whole combination of sound bringing us into that world was really just so simple, but it's so effective. Um, and then, of course, now or never just comes full blast at us. Starts playing. I know. And. So I'm going to geek out over this song for a second because, um, I mean, I love the whole, like the whole soundtrack is great, but I am a big punk, pop punk, ska person. I always have been since I was like 10 years old. It was my life growing up. I grew up not in 1995. I was a little too young, but like very late nineties, early two thousands, I was in it. Like, I remember like my first CD ever was Blink-182 Dude Ranch, like this is like my so this song is by far my favorite song on the entire soundtrack i love it it's it's why it hooked me from the very beginning and i was like i'm i'm in this um i because i was there i can tell you like without question they did a great job giving off the vibe of the production the way they shot it the way it sounds the way the boys perform the way they're dressed everything is just like nailed um and i know you had said alicia that they used authentic pieces from the 1990s is that right yeah so yeah for me i was uh, you know a late 90s baby so i had no idea what's authentic what's not authentic but from doing research um, i quickly found out most of the equipment used in this opening scene is authentic to equipment that bands and venues would have used in the 90s so the spotlights especially are something you would find at a venue. They're also incredibly hot. So the sweat that you see these actors on their face and their hair dripping off them is very authentic thanks to those 90s spotlights. 
I can totally back that up because even as somebody who was like going to shows and was in the audience every weekend, um, you know, I grew up in New York, New York City, like the punk scene. That is so true. I mean, just being there watching them, you would also be sweating. I mean, absolutely drenched. So that is a great detail that they put in there. Um, The only critique I have here is a little bit about the boys' wardrobe. So I love the way they dress obsessed with it. I definitely Reggie is very nineties to me. He like screams nineties with the flannel and the leather jacket, the white and black tees totally on point Alex and especially Luke. I know that Luke is supposed to have a heavy metal style to him. That is not heavy metal. I'm sorry. It's not. It's heavy metal for Netflix. Yeah, I guess. It is so, it is very pop punk. It is very, the band itself, even the song Now or Never, it's very derivative of early Newfound Glory, Green Day, Anne Berlin, even Blink-182. The way Luke dresses is like, that's how all my buddies dressed in like the early 2000s. And we were super into like punk and ska. So definitely not heavy metal. Totally like made my nostalgic heart beat because it just reminded me of all my friends and, you know, how they all used to dress. But it's like a little, 1995, we weren't seeing like the vans and the, and the, the banties like that he has a little bit of grunge to him which i will say carries over for sure like 90s grunge is in luke's vibe but i feel like even and their music as well is a little bit more like early 2000s but that's just from someone who was deeply immersed in the scene at the time i think that the fashion designer um soyon on she made that a little bit deliberate in the fact that she picked pieces um that weren't necessarily at their height in the 90s, but that were around in the 90s and that would still be around in the early 2000s or even now. I know when I went to school that Vans um, muscle tank look was still very much alive, unfortunately. (laughs) But yeah, I think that was a deliberate choice on her part to kind of pick pieces like Alex's champion hoodie uh, that you very much see in a store today. Um, So I guess there is a level of authenticity there that wouldn't necessarily be true to the 1990s um, in the way that, you know, not every piece was necessarily at its height there. Um, But it is interesting that a lot of that came in in the early 2000s. That must be kind of what she was playing off of there. For sure. I do think it's kind of funny that uh, Netflix had such an issue with Luke's muscle tanks. I guess they thought that they'd be too risque uh, because of Charlie's muscles. The man has muscles. Okay, this feels so weird to me because Netflix typically gives complete creative control to its shows. So I'm very taken aback with the fact that they actually stepped in and had something to say about that specific thing. And I mean, he wears muscle tees like the entire season, pretty much, when he's not wearing a jacket. I guess they were like, well, if you're going to wear it once, you better just get them all in while you can. Um, I don't know if that was because they were trying to stick to this kind of PG-13 look and they kind of reined it in a little bit more with this series than they would necessarily with some of their other teen series that are trying to reach older audiences. Um, But I definitely think they maybe were onto something because my first, my very first thought when Now or Never started playing, I just looked at Charlie as Luke and I was like, whoa, those are muscles. He, yeah. That was my first thought. I'm like, so there's a Netflix executive somewhere sweating a little bit because 
He was like, I told you it was too risky. And he might have been onto something, okay? Yeah, I, I will say I told my best friend to watch a series and she's like, okay, I'm going to start it now. And like five minutes later, she texts me and she's like, listen, I don't know any 17-year-olds that look like that. Like 17-year-olds didn't look like that when I was 17 with the arms. They never looked like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, dude, me neither. But it's cool. <laughs> it's cool with me. We got them in the end. They're there. We will do with them what we will. It's fine. I don't think, yeah, I don't think anyone's complaining about these these cute boys. But um, one more thing I just want to touch on before we move on from that performance is I think it's really um, interesting and well done how they, if you're listening, the way that Now or Never is recorded is like grittier. It's different than the way the rest of the record is or, you know, the soundtrack, I should say, record. I'm, I'm like throwing myself all the way back to early 2000s, showing my age. But the soundtrack, the songs are very glossed over, especially the more youthful ones, like very high production value. But Now or Never has a, has a raw feel. And I feel like even the way they shot those opening scenes in 1995 have a grittier feel than when they jump to the present and things are a little bit prettier a little bit more glossed over um and i just like that attention to detail it really did kind of feel like it was being shot in 1995 just the colors and the vibe um and i appreciated that i like that yeah we had definitely there was a grittier vibe to that i i got a very like spooky city of angels la uh kind of vibe you could get that haunted vibe from the Orpheum. I think it's a very, you know, dark and gritty setting to start out in, but there's that pop of color with the band and their logo yes. in the background, which I think was really smart. And yeah, I think the sound was very specific to the 90s and to the band and it stands out on the soundtrack. I think that's why so many people had an issue with Now or Never at the very beginning. I know a lot of people put it at the bottom of their list. It's a crime. Which is a crime. I'm it's a crime the best song and I know people have come around and they're like okay we get it it's different and that doesn't mean it's necessarily bad but yes it's it's meant to reflect you know this band on the edge of something truly great um it for the the amount of foreshadowing that goes on in now or never is quite incredible um you know you're kind of caught up in the song and the energy that the guys are giving off but essentially they're giving us a clue as to where the show is going to go in the next couple scenes and there's really this kind of hopeful yet haunting vibe to the lyrics. And I think just with the setting, it brings it all in so well. I agree. And it's still very melodic. And like I said, very reminiscent of pop punk. If you're into Blink or you're into Green Day, I mean, there's that is what that is the vibe like those guys give off. And I don't know, I guess people want it more pop. But I mean, three dudes in a band in 1995, they're not going to be like playing pop music. They're going to be playing like rock music punk music they are not a boy band exactly <laughs> maybe we'll see more of sunset curbs you know original sound come up i would love that i mean this i love julie and the phantoms and i love julie and i you know i love all those songs i really do but it would be kind of dope to hear i mean even i mean and we'll get into this obviously when we get to that episode but just even unsaid emily to me is because it was something that Luke wrote back in 1995. That is also, again, a song that is very reminiscent of kind of like a ballad version of what like a pop punk band has or would write. Um, and that's really just kudos to the songwriters for really making sure to like 
be careful with that distinction. Anyway, after the performance, a lot of other things happen. So we meet Rose. But before we even meet Rose, I just want to say I love how even from the get-go, these guys are so supportive of each other. Yes. Like 1995, dudes in a band, they're like propping Alex up about how awesome he is. Like right from the beginning, you get like, okay, these guys love and adore each other and are not afraid to show it even in the 90s. And that is dope. Yes, I think from the start, you know, when we first lay eyes on them, they are, you know, the typical rock band. They kind of exude this bad boy persona um, that we see so much still in TV shows. And so there's just an assumption that, okay, they're going to be a little bit more on the toxic, you know, side of masculinity. They've got this, you know, persona that they have to uphold. They are not going to be crying. They're not going to be hugging. Um, they really are, you know, they got to show that masculinity because they're rockers and they don't have a soft side. And then immediately that's just thrown right out the window. They're just three, four, because we still have Bobby there, but they're just kids. And just because they're rockers and they're boys doesn't mean that they can't show emotion. And they, they show that right off the bat. Yeah. And again, I'm going to bring my own personal experiences into this. The dudes that I hung out with, my buddies in high school that were all in bands, like they were, they acted just like these guys do. Like they were friends just like that. The silliness, the shenanigans for sure, you know, and then also just like really just adoring being around each other. That is actually like band kids were emo. Like that's just what, I mean, that was affection. They weren't jocks, you know? And, um, Maybe that's me stereotyping jocks a little bit. Sorry. But like, I don't know. That's it just it just felt so real. I think that's part of the reason why I connected to this show to begin with. It just felt like I was hanging out with my friends. Yeah, exactly. The characters, they just feel um, like someone that you would genuinely want to hang out with. And, you know, they're not protruding this type of persona that is pushing people to act more masculine. You know, they're encouraging people to just have a moment and you know encourage your loved ones to hug you and cry a little and yes toxic masculinity we don't know her no we don't we don't (laughs) okay so let's talk about rose rose yes the biggest mystery of season one for sure i think we can say safe to say at this point that it is likely julie's mom even though we never hear her actually say her mom's name yeah we've got a lot of hints and we don't have to touch on them right now because they will be uncovered as we go through all the episodes but i think there is one major hint um that that is pretty on display that we might want to touch on here when we first meet her since this is the only time we see rose actually alive I don't know, Felicia, you want to get a little bit into that? Yeah, so I actually didn't catch this uh, until a couple of rewatches in. That's how good the show is, especially in this first scene. But Rose, when the boys come up to her, she is actually wearing a fringe vest uh, that we see Julie wear during her performance of Finally Free in episode six. So the costume designer, um, she really wanted to explain that Julie's mother was an artist. So she had the pin, the Delilah pin, and the little drawings added over time so that when Julie finally wore that, it would look slightly different, but also it would explain that Julie's mom was likely an artist. She would add little touches to her costumes as she went on in life and had new experiences. 
Um, and then we see Julie do that as well this season with her own belongings. So obviously she's seen her mom do that and she's kind of taken that on herself. So it is Julie's vest that Rose is wearing in that first scene. So that's a pretty good key that that is, in fact, Julie's mom. Looks like this might be indeed Julie's mother. Indeed. Um, and again, it will be reinstated, I feel like, throughout a lot of other hints that will be dropped throughout the season. Um, but anyway, so the boys meet her and Bobby stays behind and they decide they're going to refuel on street dogs, um, which is totally something 17 year old boys would do. Eat hot dogs out of like the front of a car. The accuracy of that. Yeah, I know. And I love how the place that they go for their street dogs is called Sam and Ella's like Salmonella. This show loves a pun as much as I do. And I respect that. Oh. It is such a good pun, and it's just sitting right there, you know, it's, they're totally fine with having a little laugh at the boys' expense. I mean, they're eating street dogs out of the back of a car, so part of it, you know, is on them. Yeah, and another thing that 17-year-old boys would do is continue to eat those street dogs, even when they blatantly are tainted. I mean, all three of them are like, okay, this doesn't taste so good like that's a new flavor but they're like whatever it's all good we're indestructible you know like we're we're 17 what's gonna hurt us you know I think Reggie literally says they haven't killed us yet oh well (laughs) I think there's this level of you know we see early on that Alex is an anxious person and so he's kind of in tune to this maybe not being the best idea before the biggest performance of you know, their careers. Um, and he kind of insinuates that with the guy at the truck who, you know, apparently is perfectly fine with some rust on his car. Uh, but yeah, he kind of, he's one of the first to realize something is up. And he says, you know, these kind of taste off. And Reggie has the nerve to tell him to chill out, which, you know, is such a Reggie thing to do. Like, it's fine. Classic Reggie. Yep. You know, so in the end, yeah, I can see why maybe this leads to Alex being a little bit more anxious in in the undead. Yeah, that'll be something that I will want to talk about a lot throughout the season because I'm a huge mental health advocate and I have anxiety myself and I found it so relatable that um, Alex has anxiety. And even though they don't get into it as deeply as I will I mean, I hope they would, or I hope they will in future seasons. I do think the moments that it's displayed are really, really accurate. And um, that's totally true. Like, it's definitely his anxiety manifesting like, okay, something's not right here. Um, Because anxiety, if it's anything good, it will alert you to those problematic moments, you know, but he just goes ahead with it. And I think the hot dog scene for as funny slash tragic as it is, is again, it really establishes these three guys as different types of characters. Like you really see who each of them are in that moment. You know, like Alex is like kind of the rational, anxious, sensitive one. And then you have Reggie who is just the head in the clouds one. And then you have Luke who is just too stoked on music and and life to even think that anything bad is going to happen. Like he's optimistic and he's just like energized always. So I like what that scene does um, to set up the phantoms. Yeah, I think I think for the first time I watched um, the boys kind of meet their demise with the hot dogs. <laughs> Death by hot dog. Death by hot dog. 
I actually kind of disliked it a little. I don't know. I thought the hot dog premise was a bit juvenile. Um, and it, it too silly. It was a little too silly, but it fit the type of show that I thought I was watching. Keyword thought I was watching. Yeah. Um, but then I, you know, I realized I, I sat with it for a little bit and I realized that the humor and like the general vagueness uh, was the best thing that they could have possibly done with that. You know, I agree. We are so used to using death as a defining point in series. You know, so many shows rely on death as a plot point, and it really doesn't need to be, especially when we're looking to more lighthearted series right now to watch. And so I think the show really takes it as a jumping off point. It's not necessarily the end of their lives, but the beginning of something else. And I think it's in its um, whole, it's a very dark scene. You know, three boys at the top of their, they're about to become superstars. They're about to have everything they ever wanted. And, you know, that comes crashing down for them. That's a very dark thing to deal with within the first five minutes of a, you know, a teen series. So I think they handle it in a way that kind of plays at their expense, but doesn't, you know, it makes it feel more lighthearted in a way that we really needed going into the series. Totally. I mean, it's, it's such a dark premise to begin with, you know, the context that, I mean, like you said, like these three young boys are, are dying period, but then they're also dying when they're about to take off and have their dreams come true. That's already dark enough. So the way that they die being sort of silly almost balances it from taking the series to too dark a place and just because the way that they die is silly doesn't mean that their grief or the ramifications of their death um isn't dealt with and it is dealt with in a really serious way so i think that again balances out later when when they really get into the fact that you know they are no longer living and they left people behind and and they don't know their families anymore and things like that so that is touched on it's not just all a whim, you know, like, oh, we're dead by hot dog. Ha ha. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I think I think the vagueness of their death also leaves the door open uh, for the series to suggest that there's something maybe more sinister going on there. We really don't know what kind of series this is going to be going forward. Um, you know, I would be quick to say, oh, murder is way too far. We're not going to go the murder route. But Disney, if you recall, is so down for murder. Like, I watched The Society of Secondborn Royals the other day, and, like, the amount of murder in that plot for a children's movie was ridiculous. So I think it's an option that they maybe could explore um, in terms of Bobby. You know, the guy flees the scene. I know that is a theory going around that he killed them. Yeah, and then there's Caleb, and there's a lot of sinister stuff going on with him, and the fact that he can interact with lifers. So there's a level of, you know, is there something more there? Is there not? And if there isn't, I think that's perfectly fine. I think the way that they have it is great. If it tends to come back around at some point and, you know, there was an ulterior motive there, I don't think it would make or break the show. Um, they've kind of set up for that. This is one of those scenes that you really should go back and rewatch because the sheer amount of details that they put in this one scene for the rest of the season and possibly the series is really just astounding and clever. I mean, we see that missing person flyer behind Luke. We get his last name. We get his name right off the bat. Patterson. We know that there's something there before we even know what it is um, in terms of why is he missing. You know, there's a lot of insinuation here with Bobby. Luke gives him a wet willy while he's flirting with Rose, and that kind of 
states that maybe they're not the perfect family, that there's something with Bobby that puts them on the outside. And I think there's just so many details there that they can go back to. And they've crafted this scene in a way that it just, it's like the foundation for the rest of the series. And it can continue to change and mold with that series. So I agree. I think that's really interesting you bring Caleb into it because I'm, I've been kind of a firm believer that Bobby didn't poison hot dogs. I just don't see how that would work. Like, did he, he would meet up with the, I mean, how would he know what hot dogs? I don't know. Like, I just, I've, I just felt like my gut says like it wasn't Bobby. Um, Cause I think that Bobby has like done enough kind of sinister stuff to the guys after their death. I mean, the things he did, like taking all their songs and again, we'll get into all that, but that's pretty, it's pretty dark stuff. Um, but it doesn't really feel like logical to me for Bobby, but Caleb, that's really interesting because there's so much we don't know about Caleb still. I find him, I don't know, he's the villain, but I'm not, we, there's so much we have left to learn about why or what his, we don't know what his motives are like at all whatsoever. Um, so, and he obviously knew about them from the very beginning as we, you know, we'll talk about in a little while when he bumps into Alex. So where where did that all start did he know them back then did he is this all been his plan is he connected to why they came I mean it's there's so many questions there and I can really see that yeah see that being connected and him having a hand in that in some way especially with his powers and things that he's able to do exactly I think um just going forward there's so much there to work with I really don't know if Bobby fits into this in a bigger aspect than what he, he already might. He, he might yeah he is obviously the most popular theory out there on the web But yeah, I think for me, when someone mentioned Caleb, I really clicked because um, I know that Cheyenne Jackson, who plays him, says that there has to be a reason why he's connected to them. You know, it's not like he just picked these boys out of a crowd. He he knew about them prior. There's a connection there that we don't know about. And it, you know, it's scary to think that what is that connection? How could there possibly be a connection there? And it's obviously a puzzle piece we don't have yet that this scene gives us a little context to I don't know but it's possible that Caleb maybe was involved in something to do with their deaths because he can interact with lifers and because there is something more sinister with his Hollywood club and how he keeps the people that are members there in line as we know so we'll just have to wait and see if the show's maybe gonna take a darker turn but I think this this first scene really shows that if they want to go darker, they can and they can still make us laugh. So for sure. Absolutely. I think it's time that we get to present day. Let's meet. Let's meet our other characters. Let's meet Julie. Let's meet Flynn. Let's meet Carrie, I guess. And let's meet Nick. So we, you know, we open with Julie's school. We see her walking in. And I think that we would be remiss to not immediately speak on her fashion her presentation how we meet her the way she carries herself I think it's obvious from the moment we see her that she has a heavy heart um and this fashion obviously is a huge thread that will go throughout the entire season um and it it is um such a symbol of who Julie is you know depending on what she wears but she's wearing baggy clothes she's literally wearing a hat to cover her face I mean there's just, there's so much there to describe without even having to have any sort of exposition or dialogue at all that she's, she's a struggling girl. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, you know, when we meet Julie, she's very different from the Julie that we see at the end of the episode. 
Um, she's wearing oversized clothing and layers, as you had mentioned, and that kind of insinuates that it's a security blanket for her. Um, and I think this is one of the great moments where they don't have to come out and say that she lost her mom right away because we can insinuate from her posture and from what she's wearing and just her general lack of interest for certain things in her life that obviously she's going through something and she's grieving and it's not necessarily at the beginning of that grief, but that she's been in it for a while and she's kind of just trying to survive because that's really what we see at the beginning is a girl that's just trying to survive and figure out where she wants to go. And now that she doesn't have, you know, this muse in her life anymore to kind of show her the way. Totally. And I mean, I don't really have much to say about the first meeting of Flynn other than I love her. I love her energy. I love the, I mean, how clear it is that she's just such a supportive and loving friend that just wants the best for Julie in every way. And you can just tell from the minute we meet her and the way that they interact. And she, I don't know, she definitely just, she just wants Julie to be happy again, but not in like a, in a pushy why can't my friend just get over it kind of way just in a like I just want to help you navigate your way back to some semblance of happiness you know I don't want to see you lose all the things that you love because of your grief or whatever it may be so I, I love that about Flynn and then of course we meet Carrie and Nick as well yes yeah Carrie and Nick I mean Carrie is definitely that stereotypical you know mean girl right off the bat um which obviously we'll get into her not necessarily being that, but from the start, Julie and the Phantoms really wants us to kind of see her as the Sharpay of the school and Nick as her, you know, almost almost a Troy Bolton. I don't I don't know how else to to describe Nick at the moment. He really is, you know, that MVP uh jock um that just kind of there. Yeah, I find Nick a very interesting character because for the majority of the season, I really struggled or was I don't know I was perplexed as to like what his purpose was other than being like the living foil to Luke's ghost boy you know I I wasn't totally sure like what what the point was there but I think that obviously became clear again uh, and especially at the end of the season when we everything happens with Caleb but um but yeah I don't dislike Nick but I do dislike this trope that even Kenny Ortega can't seem to break of this boy who is, for all intents and pur- purposes, a nice kid. I mean, he's he's a good kid, right? He's talented. He's nice. He likes Julie, he, whatever. Dating the, you know, the queen bee of the school, e- even though she's like heinous and so mean to everyone. I don't, I don't understand that trope and why we can't get past that and yes I know that that eventually they do break up but it's clear that this has been going on like when when we when we walk into this scene we're walking into a dynamic that's been alive for quite a while it seems to me yeah and and yeah I do I have a hard time with Carrie and Nick and connecting with them especially when they're together because it definitely seems like he's there to soften the blow of whatever mean thing Carrie has just said to Julie um but I definitely think the the one thing that Julie and the Phantoms does well with this uh relationship is from the start Nick is not okay with ca- what Carrie is doing he's maybe a little complicit for sure complicit uh but he does call her out on stuff which is which is nice because it does lead to a bigger arc for him throughout the season. I So I like off the bat 
you know, he, he recognizes that she's not the nicest person. Um, and he does call her out on it multiple times. And eventually he does get to the point where he's helping Julie and Flynn a little bit more. And he realizes that he can't have this relationship with Carrie and then also have this friendship with those two girls where they're just constantly, you know, there's inward fighting. And so he makes that difficult decision to cut Carrie out of his life. And obviously Carrie will go on her own journey with that. But and we'll get into that more as she becomes a bigger role in this. But yeah, right off the bat, you know, they're kind of introduces stereotypes, um, maybe more toned down than what we're used to seeing. Um, I know from when I was watching Disney, that mean girl was right in your face. So I, I kind of like that Carrie's a little bit, you know, more toned down and, and she does get kind of told to, you know, shut up if it gets too far. Um, I do respect her fashion, though. That girl, she's using Luke's money well, it looks like. Uh, yeah, no, I respect her fashion, but, um, and yeah, Nick definitely has a great growth arc, so, I mean, no shade to him there, um, as a character, but, I mean, Carrie, when you really think about it, and yes, like, she does get told to shut up by Flynn, whoever, but, like, in that scene where it's Julie's last attempt at, at music, and she has to play, and I'm obviously, Carrie, and I'm sure the whole school, or at least that whole class, is aware that Julie lost her mother. So finding out that information and knowing that Julie couldn't play and Carrie still has the audacity to snark about that and make fun of her in that moment, I just find that, I mean, that's yeah. that's top tier level of terrible to me. There, There's some savageness there for sure. Serious savageness. I mean, you don't really get any witchier than and I really want to use a different word there but this is a PG podcast so we'll use witchy um <laughs> it's pretty witchy to um make fun of someone whose mother passed away and someone who is obviously dealing with some serious grief that is really really bad so um didn't love that from her for sure yeah and I you know I find those scenes interesting now having watched the whole season and going back because I think what Carrie does is absolutely uncalled for it it really is disgusting um in that first couple scenes and they really are establishing that look she'll go there she might have been friends with them at some point but she clearly has something I also think there's a layer of why is Carrie having to make such a point of ruining Julie's life in this very specific way and coming for her in a very um emotional way and I think that there's something there that you know runs deeper um something that would drive Carrie to poke fun at Julie in such a intimate way because she obviously knows what her relationship was like with her mom and she was going for a nerve there and it's just a matter of why exactly does she because there you know there are times in the series we're going to see where it's clear Carrie she knows these girls and she might still care for them in a way or that she's harboring this kind of hatred for the fact that they can't care for each other anymore and so I think it almost she lashes out at them sometimes because they're huddled together and she's no longer a part of that so I'm very interested to see what the fallout was of that and what specific reason drove her to go from being best friends with these two girls to you know taking these really awful digs at them um, you know, I, to me, I think Julie and the Phantoms will go with something much deeper than just stealing a boyfriend or something very teen-like. Yeah, 
I don't think it was a boyfriend because, I mean, she's obviously dating Nick. And while Julie has a crush on Nick, it does not feel like those two have ever, like when he asked her out down the road, that seems like a very first time situation. Like, I don't think, I don't think it was a boy. If I had to guess, I mean, and this is just my theory. I mean, they're both musicians. They're both, you know, performers. So I would guess it has something to do with either jealousy or competition in that vein of things that got in between them. Um, whether it goes like deeper than that, I, I, I really don't know, but Carrie does seem like the type of person who maybe she felt pressure from her very successful father to be the best. And maybe he was comparing her to Julie or she didn't feel like she was good enough and took it out on Julie and their friendship. I don't know. I mean, there are a million ways that they could really take it, but whatever they do, I do hope that they address it and we do get more backstory there than them just um possibly like making up and moving forward i want to hear like what happened to begin yeah. with i think there's there's a really um juicy storyline there in terms of what happened and i think that they have the opportunity having brought carrie in in this episode as kind of the lowest form of herself and we do see a little bit of growth through the season i definitely think there's a really valuable redemption arc there for her and not even a redemption arc just an opportunity for them to explore kind of her relationship with Julie now and I do find that very interesting because obviously sometimes these mean girls are very two-dimensional and I don't see that with Carrie I see a lot that she's holding back and I really would like to just see her and Julie sit down and have you know that fight and and explain why they are like that with each other and I think that'll be really valuable for the series um, if they get the opportunity to do that because I think it connects to the bigger story of Luke and Bobby and Reggie and Alex as well. So I hope so. Sure hope so. I hope so. This is why we need a season two, you know? Come on now. Come on, Netflix. Don't let me down. All right. So my question though, the garage and the house. Because later Luke says, Hey Julie, I really love what you've done with the place. They've been in the house too. Whose house is that? Whose garage is that? I want to touch on that because I have like, yeah, some questions. Let's do it. I would think the most important part of this episode comes really with the studio, which is such a legendary set from the minute Julie walks into it. I think it just epitomizes that teen kind of. Yeah. So I think that from the moment that she walks in, it really is. It it does. It it epitomizes the perfect teen um, scenario, the perfect teen tone. The tone is like set from this scene with the chemistry between Julie and the boys, the chemistry that Julie has actually with the room itself. Yeah. I would say because the room is almost this, um, this symbol of her mother, but also this symbol of the boys. And it's, it's perfectly balanced between them, um, between, and every little thing in the room has a purpose. From the grand piano all the way down to every little thing in the loft that they're very um, meticulous in showing you from the drumsticks to the keyboard to the sunset curve CD, etc. You know? Yes. Yeah. The studio just from the start um, just looks like a cool set. It looks like the kind of set you'd want to hang out in yourself. Um, but there's just so many details there that in every episode you can look around and you can find things. And that's what has encouraged so many people to rewatch the series I think is just to catch these little details but yeah the studio in particular I think was really smart on the productions part 
you know, the show films in Vancouver and it almost had me fooled. It really did as to whether or not it, it did film in Vancouver because of the studio. I think the house screams, you know, CW, I've seen the flash there a million times type thing, but the studio itself with the greenery around it, I really didn't know where that was um, outside of Julie and the Phantoms. So I think they did a good job of making the set look like something different, something we haven't seen a thousand times in every show that's filmed in Vancouver. So for me, that was a huge thing just right off the bat that they created this unique world that no other show has gotten to live in. But I think that initial scene of just Julie walking back in and she's like inspecting the studios, you know, she goes up into the loft and she sees all of this remnants of other people's lives that curves lives. You know, she ends up finding the band CD and she's into it when she plays it. I love how into it she is. She's like, oh, this is a bop. <laughs> you know, she finds that paint supplies up there that we later in another episode see is what they use to paint the Sunset Curve logo. I think that's just a great little tidbit. But I think for me, the thing I latched onto the most were the duffel bags that are sitting up in the loft, which we in episode two, of course, see Alex find and he says, oh, we left some extra bags up here. But what I've noticed from rewatching this episode is those duffel bags are the same duffel bags that the boys have on them the night that they died at the Orpheum. So I'm very curious to know why they would have doubles of the same bag or if those are the actual bags from the Orpheum, which if that's the case, that opens up a huge discussion for how did this stuff end back up there, you know? And I think there's so many questions surrounding the studio, which I like because It's such a big part of the story. But, you know, what is the connection between Sunset Curve, the studio, and Julie? Or Sunset Curve and Rose? You know, we know that they didn't know each other prior. We can assume that um, the boys used the studio to practice. And then at some point, Rose bought the house. And that the stuff was already there when she bought the house. And she must have seen it. Because the chances of her not going up into the loft and seeing those things are, I feel like, close to none so is that why she bought it what it I you know what I mean like did she like what what is the deeper explanation here to all that where where is the overlap there yeah exactly yes and who was living in that house when the boys were practicing in it that to me again is such a huge question that needs to be answered eventually I yeah I agree I think just you know the question of whether or not Rose did she go looking for their legacy? You know, did she meet these three boys and she saw that, you know, the music had just forgotten them and she went looking for them? You know, did she recognize the stuff when she was up in the loft? Did she have a hand in putting any of that stuff there? We don't know the timeline of, you know, when she bought the house. It could have been right after their deaths even. We really just don't know. And I think um, the bigger question comes with the instruments that we also see in this episode. Um, there's that part in a later episode where we see that the instruments are connected to them and that they come when they call them, but that's not the case with the first episode. And we see the boys playing the instruments later in Wake Up, um, that were already just sitting there. Like Alex's drum set is already fully set up in the corner. And it's a question of, these are the exact instruments that they had at the Orpheum. So how did three broke bandmates afford doubles of the same instruments to be in that loft. So it's probably likely that the instruments they use at the Orpheum are the instruments that are sitting in Julie's loft. They were brought back somehow, but by who? 
and why and who, what, where, when, why. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just. There's dots to connect. I will say that, you know, short of not knowing if we're going to get a season two, so we won't get the answers. I'm glad that they didn't touch on it in this season because I feel like the show took its time. I just hate when shows rush through plot just to just for the sake of rushing through plot. I don't mind having a few mysteries. I don't mind having a few dots left to connect. Focus on the important stories and and let your characters develop and let us get connected to them and don't don't you know flash forward too fast because then I don't have a chance to invest myself and I don't care as much. So I'm I'm okay with not knowing all the answers right now if that makes sense. I think I think that's the one thing that the show does the best um, is just the fact that it sticks to building a very small world and a very uncomplicated world in terms of, you know, what Julie is seeing and what the boys are seeing. These people don't know what's going on. Julie doesn't know what's going on. You know, Sunset Curve, they don't know what's going on. They don't know what the bigger picture is or what these questions are they have the same questions that we do so I think that's really smart that they keep us in the dark too because it keeps us connected to the characters but they leave these details in here because in order to build the story further they do need them there but if the story doesn't end up going further we can connect the dots ourselves so we'll see this in the um, meet the family scene that's coming up but a lot of the dots get connected for us through props they they use props so well in the show in terms of just explaining a scene before it's set up so that we don't have to hear it through dialogue and I think that's what makes this pilot episode stand out differently from other pilot episodes is we don't have to sit through dialogue going well I'm this person and this is my backstory because there are details behind them that are explaining it and so I think that that part where she goes up into the loft and she sees all this stuff it's explaining the story you know that we already know and what's coming and we can connect those dots and I think that's part of what I touched on before about dumbing a story down for a younger audience you don't have to the you know if a 12 year old 10 year old is watching the show they're going to connect the same dots that I'm connecting you know these details are there and they make a greater story and I think the story that we get in the end is both the dialogue, but it's also all these little details that come together. I mean, take any writing class, and one of the first things that you're going to learn is to show, not tell. And I think that telling is a huge issue that so many shows, especially today, which is why I love like 90 shows and things, because they they really were able to do this a lot better than shows today. And I don't know if that's because with streaming, there's less episodes. But then again, you can't really use that argument because look at Julie and the Phantoms. They're on Netflix. They only got nine episodes and they did it beautifully. But um, yeah, just telling us too much is with too much exposition is just overwhelming and it's unnecessary. And it's just way more enjoyable to to watch it unfold through props and through actions rather than dialogue. I will say, though, the one place where there is some exposition that I appreciate is whenever you get into, I don't want to call it science fiction because I don't really classify Julian the Phantoms as science fiction, but whenever you get into like supernatural kind of things, um, there sometimes is, is a tendency to not explain things and it, it will it will leave viewers frustrated because you'll be like, okay, well, how could they do that? But not that. And how can they? So like, it's really nice to watch the boys and Julie kind of figure out what they're capable of, what they're not able to do as ghosts, what they can do, how that all works and really 
take the time to give us those explanations so that we understand kind of what the rules are, or at least we go on that journey with them to figuring out what the rules are for them as ghosts. I, I like that. That's a place where exposition actually really works for me. Yeah, exactly. We're we're on this journey with them at the same time. And so we don't know any more than they do. And I think that works in the fact that by the end of this journey through the first season, you know, we're not asking necessarily for more because we didn't have enough. We're just asking for more because we loved what we got. So I think this was just a case of, you know, we're in this pilot. We don't know what's going on. All of a sudden there's three ghosts here and we're trying to figure it out just as much as they are. And I think that's a really smart thing that the show did because it's basically saying to us you can't look away from the screen you can't stop and do something else you know I thought I was gonna watch the show and maybe multitask at the same time you can't do that with Julie and the Phantoms you have to give your full attention to it from start to finish because a lot of the plot is happening you know behind the characters or it's happening in subcontext so you really have to be alert and I think shows that grip you like that are just so rare these days and I'm glad that this show did it of all shows so for sure so as you said we do also meet Julie's family this episode and I think touching on that is important I know that there's some connection to a couple of the names that you wanted to talk about with you know how Kenny Ortega might have been deliberate with that so why don't you talk a little bit about that so when I heard this uh, it, it really took me back for a minute. Um, growing up, you know, in, in the Disney, the height of Disney, um, and I said I watched Jesse when it was on TV, and I was kind of phasing out of Disney. So I do remember it, but I didn't really watch all of it. Um, and the same with Descendants, that was kind of a little bit after uh, I'd stopped watching that channel. But yeah, it really hit me um, that whether it was deliberate or not, Carlos and Luke are both names of characters that Cameron Boyce has played during his time working on Disney. Luke with Jesse and Carlos with Descendants. Obviously, the actor passed away, I believe, last year. And many believe that this is Kenny Ortega's way of kind of paying tribute to Boyce for his time on Disney and his projects. And I think shows, you know, how much passion and work that Kenny Ortega puts into these series uh, to give people little details like that. I think it was a really sweet tribute. With Boo Boo Stewart in the series, I definitely felt like this would be a project that Cameron would have worked on. Uh, and you could kind of see where he might have fit into it. And so to actually have his names, you know, these characters attached to the series, for me, it was just a really sweet tribute. And I know there's a lot more that you also want to say about these family scenes. I don't have a ton personally to say about them, but there are a couple things that I just want to touch on. So I love that when we meet Ray, it is clear from, again, the very beginning that these two have a very comfortable, close, loving relationship. I think that um, a daughter and father relationship can be sort of thrown to the wayside sometimes or sometimes the storyline can be that the two have a problem communicating or relating to each other and that is clearly not the case here they just love each other so much they understand they have sort of um, a rapport with each other that is really nice and we see that in their interactions in the way they speak to each other um, they talk through things he listens um, he pays attention to her and I just really appreciate that dynamic a lot. And it only gets better 
um, as the season goes on. Um, the one critique I have here is not from Ray, but from the character of Julie. I didn't love, I love that it is canon that Julie was obviously seeing a therapist. I think that's really important. You know, it doesn't, it didn't need to be like a whole huge storyline, but just for it to be mentioned that she obviously was going to therapy after going through something like losing her mother is, is really nice to see in a show and touched on. Um, but I didn't love the negative connotation that Julie had with her therapist. Again, it's not like she was like, oh, I hate her. She's, she's terrible, whatever. But it was just kind of like, she obviously wasn't a fan of her therapist, you know, kind of like making fun of her dad, kind of sounding like her therapist. It just, it had a, it had a negative connotation. And I just wish that there could have been a little more positive representation of what therapy can do for a kid. Cause just those little things do matter. Um, even if we feel like they don't. So that would be like my one critique. I think even if I had one critique of the whole entire episode, that would probably be what it was. Um, but that's just because mental health conversations are so, so important to me personally. Um, but yeah, that's what I have to say about her and her family. Yeah, I think I think it's an important point you made about the therapy and not um, going forward, showing that in a negative light. And I do like that they kind of move away from that and go more into, you know, Julie's concern about her own family's um, concern for her and that she just wants validation from them that what she's feeling is, you know, okay and that she's not crazy. And that especially comes true when the, she meets these ghosts and she has to deal with the fact that, you know, to come out about that would be to put herself in a position where she's vulnerable again and she has these people watching her, um, not necessarily because, you know, they're looking out for her best at the time, but just because they're concerned for her well-being. So I think she just is worried about, you know, her family not believing her when she needs them to and just not taking her emotions into account. And I think it comes from a level of, you know, losing the mother figure in the house. She definitely feels a pressure to be that strong force, especially, you know, her dad doesn't take me as the type that he did the hard parenting. You see that with Tia a little bit For sure. um, where where he, he, you know, he's still navigating how to be, you know, the bad cop of the relationship sometimes. And so I think for Julie, she thinks she has to take a lot of that on. And if she is the one that's breaking down, she can't do that. And that's not necessarily true. And I think we'll see that a little bit more, especially now that she has to, you know, be in this relationship with a band and they're more emotional together and she has that support system that maybe she'll open up more to her dad and to her friends and show them that, you know, like she's not as strong as she's letting on she is. And that's okay. So I think we'll see more conversation about that for sure. I don't blame her for worrying about telling her dad that she saw three ghosts. I mean, she does tell him at first and they obviously don't believe her. Yeah. But like she tries. Okay. She made an effort. I get her not pushing it because like, who's going to believe? I mean, like, honestly, like Like, your parent is going to be concerned if you're like, you're like, no, seriously, there are ghosts standing right here. I swear to God, I'm seeing them right in front of me. Like a parent is probably going to be like, okay, this probably is connected to grief. And this is like, that's, I think that her dad's reaction to it was understandable as a father. Like, okay, like this has to be like manifested in grief. Cause who's just going to like, believe that there are like three teenage ghosts around the house, you know? So like, I get that. Like I get her like 
because even later she's like do i tell flynn i mean and it's understandable that flynn is that gets upset that she's being lied to but at the same time it's like how do you tell people that three teenage ghosts are playing music with you i mean you do sound a little you know again the premise of the show is a little out there and the poor girl has to try and explain it to her dad and he's just not gonna believe her i mean I, I don't know if I could believe her, you know, so it's, it is a matter of, yeah, it's crazy. And I think that's a really good way, unfortunately for Julie to lock her into this like secretive premise that the ghost can't be out and about because that would, that would really ruin um, the bigger premise of the show. And I really hope they do keep the ghost a secret for as long as they can, because I think it's their biggest um, drawback, you know, as the show is entirely, that's the most valuable thing is that people can't see the ghosts and that Julie can. And I, I really hope they keep that for as long as they can. Yeah, just touching on Julie and her dad's relationship, I think their relationship is incredibly healthy. You know, there really isn't any toxic um, parenting going on there. You know, they talk to each other like equals. They're there to support each other. Her dad is very open about how he is coping. You know, he tells her that for him, he has her and Carlos and those that's his connection to the mother and that he wants her to find her connection. And he's really supportive of her in that way. And I just think that we don't see enough of, you know, those healthy parent relationships in teen shows these days. Again, not going to mention any, but <laughs> there's a couple shows out there that Riverdale, <laughs> uh, you know, it's nice that Ray doesn't moonlight as a gangster um underworld con that's running you know a thing out of the back of a restaurant a gang member i don't know you i pick and pick your pick your poison there (laughs) mob member leader of a gang there's just so many things to choose from there exactly he's not moonlighting as a gangster or anything he's just he's living his life photographing stuff he's a good dad he's a good dad he's a good dad doing the best that he can and making a clear effort to connect with his children. And I think that that is huge. I like the um, addition of Tia as much as I don't know if I like her fully as a character, just because she is very um, specific to, you know, a parenting stereotype and she's very specific to a plot device. Um, Yeah. But I do like that she is grieving clearly very differently than what they are and she's that parent you know she's that person that's wanting them to move on immediately and if they're not where she is then they're not doing something right and I think it'll be interesting to see where that goes going forward but yeah she definitely doesn't share the same uh, values for music that Julie and her mom did you know she She's not a sentimental person, technically. You can tell by the plates on the table, you know, and them having to whip it off before she comes in the room. She wants them to sell. They, she wants them to sell the house. Yeah, exactly. Which, like, Tia, no. Like, don't don't encourage them. Are you really going to give that house up? I mean, come on. Yeah. It's a great house. My favorite part of the show is when they're just like, can we, can we not sell it? And the dad's just like, yeah, I guess we, yeah. don't, we don't have like, to. We can totally keep it. I'm like, thank you. Yes. Yes to all this. But yeah, no, Antia, you know, it'll be interesting to see. She obviously is kind of just that parent figure that's there to punish Julie when she kind of steps out of place or, you know, keep Carlos in line. She really is Carlos's babysitter for most of this. Um, But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how she fits into everything. 
but right now I'm not 100% sold on on that relationship between her and the rest of the family I want to see more of that I agree I need more of it as well um just props to um the actors who play Carlos and Ray um the way that these actors are able to pretend that these boys are not there in these scenes and they really do a really great job I feel like of even the the actor who plays who plays Carlos who who is so young he really does a good job of pretending like he has absolutely no idea that these people are standing right next to him when clearly they are for the scene I don't know it's just it's really impressive and it's it's impressive of the boys as well because I know that they had to do a lot of really meticulous FX work um I know Jeremy Shadow was talking about you know when they poof onto the top of the Orpheum later in the episode and he lost he loses his shirt and he said it was like such a difficult stunt to do because everyone has to stay completely still as he takes his jacket off and puts a new shirt on and then everybody you know has to like flip right back into character I really feel like those things you really undervalue like how much work that really takes to pull off an effect like that and I just think it's done really well. I can't stand when there are special effects in shows that look so fake and are just so overdone. Like a lot of CW shows, some of their special effects are like, oh my God, this looks so bad. I would rather just have like prosthetics than have all these like special effects. But in Julie and the Phantoms, it works so well. And that's obviously, you know, props to the editing team, but also to the actors involved who like really did a good job with it. I just had to shout that out. Like the special effects in the show are so simple it's they know what budget they had to work with and instead of trying to you know i i recall immediately what show comes to mind is team wolf that show had no budget special effects wise and they were having i think there were three separate scenes throughout the series where they had a snake come out of a guy's eye and i'm like you don't have the budget for this why is this a necessity to to the plot i know so the fact that julian the phantoms acknowledges the budget that they have and they use it to just do this simple, you know, when the boys are popping in and out, it's a very quick thing. It, it's elegant and it works for the story. And I think they rely a lot on the fact that, yes, these are ghosts, but they're not like floating around or anything. You know, they're just it, the, the special effects are yeah. very simple and they keep the story grounded because I think to have, you know, these huge ghost shenanigans right off the bat just wouldn't have worked. So I think the story and the special effects lined up beautifully. I agree. 100%. So we need to talk about Julie meeting the Phantoms. Yes. <laughs> yes, we do. Easily the best part of the show. It really is. It's, it's definitely the best part of the whole entire pilot. Well, I don't know, because the performances are really good as well. The performances are good. Um, I mean, wake up. Come on. That's, we'll get yes. to it. But Lord. I think this is just the combination of everything that we've seen so far coming together. And I think these scenes really make or break just a show in general is this one where, you know, all of the elements are colliding. We have the supernatural paranormal elements. We have the boys and then we have Julie and it's all got to come together and it's got to work. And that doesn't always happen. So that initial, you know, meeting, I think was exactly what needed to happen. It's all very the way that Julie's introduced these boys is extremely Casper-esque it is like Cat meeting Casper in the movie Casper it is 
I mean, it is literally almost the exact same type of type of meeting with Julie having the almost the exact same reaction, which is completely endearing. I love it. I think everything done in this sequence is flawless from the special effects. I just all the way through the way that they poof those boys in and out. I mean, wow, like it just looks so good. It looks so good. Um, it's hilarious. There's chemistry between the four of them, like right off the bat. I, I mean, that whole sequence is just written so well. It's so good. It's, ugh, it's so good. Yes. Um, I really like how it's paced. It's paced when they first come in, like very, very quickly. The uh, just the banter really works for me. Um, I love how like they're just as confused as she is. So she's scared of them, and they're scared of her. And they're like, "Is she a witch? We're going with." witch right witch and it's just I don't know it's it all just works so so well for me it's so funny it's so good yeah I I don't know what I love more about that I am a sucker for you know these paranormal shows where the innocent person meets the monster and they both scream at each other at the top of their lungs (laughs) so I just everything you know that initial meeting of you know the screaming that immediately is met with more loud screaming and then Reggie and Alex instantly grabbing Luke to hide behind him as a human shield. That's just so ridiculous and funny. And I think it plays into it so well. And then I don't know why, but when they're falling, all I can hear is Luke gagging at the top of his lungs. Like there's a good 20 seconds. It's just Luke gagging on the floor, which for some reason works for the scene, I guess. But just the amount of the the lack of dialogue and the amount of sounds going on, I think just plays so well into this chaotic energy of their first meeting. I totally agree. And I also just think there is so much to be said for like how specific these characters are written. Like I just think Reggie, Luke, and Alex are so different as characters. It's not just like, oh, these like three guys in a band. They are have such specific personalities and everything they do and every piece of dialogue they're given feels like it's such a deliberate, it's just so specified to who each of them are, you know, from Alex crying for 25 years to being like, let me the more sensitive one actually get through to her but then being completely useless anyway like it's just it all just and and like and Luke kind of smiling and and sort of thinking this is all kind of funny and like he's excited because he can play music and none of that other stuff even matters you know and it's it's all just it's fantastic just the initial figuring out what um the three boys what their dynamic is is just so fun because you have you know Reggie who thinks Julie is a witch and then you have Alex, who immediately is like, uh, I don't know if that's true. And She's then not a witch. Luke, Luke just jumps on the witch yeah. bandwagon immediately. And Alex has to be the one that's like, guys, no, this is really ridiculous. Why are we going in the witch direction? <laughs> but then there's like, they have this group huddle where they think that Julie can't hear them having this conversation. I know she's right there. She's right there. But then like, so we're watching them kind of go through the stereotypes of like what role they're going to play in this group because we're so used to, you know, in these shows having to establish a character right away. So I think it's interesting because Alex comes out right away as this smart one takes charge you know he's the responsible one of the group and so he is like let me take care of it and then he immediately botches it by screaming in julie's face and it's just like oh okay these ghosts are clueless 
none of them know what they're doing. Yeah. I'm, I think I love them. They're, yeah, they're just so unique and different. And I think we're just going through that journey of watching them figure out what's going on and then how to deal with that in a way that, you know, doesn't cause more problems. It's just, it's gold. It's really it is. Gold. It really is gold. They're just, they're all a mess. Just every single one of them is just a huge mess. And I just think Julie grabbing the cross and just, you know, like putting it out in front of them and Luke being terrified of it, even though I'm pretty sure that it obviously isn't going to do anything for him, you know, it's just, um, and them just figuring out like where they are and why they are. I don't know. It, it all works. And then even there's like, like I was talking about technology before there's the mention of the phone there and they immediately grab it. But like, there is that nod to, we don't know what a cell phone is obviously, but they're not going to like extend upon that. She's like, it's my phone. And they're like, okay. And that's all we hear about it. Exactly. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's a flawless, a flawless scene. And the scene, I mean, them coming in the house is really funny as well, but the scene that gets a little more serious outside when we hear about, you know, Julie telling Luke and the other boys that, you know, my mother passed away and, and talking about all that is also a really flawless scene for, for different reasons. Obviously a very different tone, but it also speaks to how well balanced this show. I mean, really, like you go from hysterically laughing to being extremely moved in like a matter of minutes. Yeah, the show recognizes that with humor, there's also got to be a level of emotional connection there and vulnerability. Um, and I think they play off that really well because they can switch so fast. I mean, you do. You have those scenes with Julie and the cross, which if I had three ghost boys show up in my garage, you know I'd be grabbing a cross, okay? Like, my prayers would be answered. And can we talk about how Julie says, like, I'm going to look up, you know, these three cute ghosts. And he's like, Reggie's like, oh, you think we're cute? <laughs> <laughs> she just looked like she wanted to take him out and it's like just, boy <laughs> yeah and I respect that you know what like let's off the bat just say they're cute let's get it out there you know what we know why we're here it's fine but then yeah. she, you know she immediately goes into this kind of information overload she's giving the audience information here as to who these people are you know just some background information and I, I love these articles they pull up on phones that, you know, they're not really meant to be read by us. It's more of just a prop. So if you were ever to read it, it doesn't actually, like, it's not a full sentence paragraph. You wouldn't actually be able to make sense of it yeah. too much. But I know, like, that article actually said that they had three other songs on their demo, which, yes, it's a demo of probably had other songs, but to me, there's three other songs on a Sunset Curve demo that I haven't heard. Y'all better release that stat, please. Like, we got Late Last Night, Lakeside Reflection, and In Your Starlight. I need to know what these songs are about, Netflix. Just sound romantic. Yeah. Like, Late Last Night, what was going on then? You know that was just Reggie, and he was playing his banjo. Yeah. You know that's what it is. Thinking about a possible country album that he might want to put together. <laughs> exactly. But I do want to talk about that outside conversation that they have um, where, where things slow down. Because I think that Luke and Julie's conversation, um, there's an immediate connection there between them. Um, and I think that the mental connection between Julie and Luke in general is one of the most beautiful parts of the show and it is really refreshing to see a show that focuses so deeply on mental connection not just to say that oh this is a Kenny Ortega film or, or show or a kid show so there obviously isn't going to be a lot of kissing and physical stuff 
but it's more than that. It's they have a deeper level of understanding of one another. And the show really takes its time to build on that with each passing episode. And from the very beginning, just without even realizing it, Luke speaking to her about how music is everything to them and a musician would never give up the opportunity to play. That hits Julie so close to home and you can see it in her face and her reaction when he says that. She realizes that she's giving up that as well and she has that choice and she's chosen to give it up and what does that mean and it gets her her wheels turning in her mind but he doesn't even realize what he's doing for her um at that point and it's just a, it's just a beautiful introduction to that connection yeah i think that scene really solidifies um julie and luke as a unit going forward i think the show does a really good job of having julie kind of lie about her musical talent or what exactly she's holding back we know that there's something there we know that she did obviously have some connection to music with her mom but we don't know exactly what it is and she does straight up tell the boys that she doesn't play so I think when Luke is explaining that journey to her of you know sunset curve and how they can play again and how important it is he doesn't recognize it initially but she you know that's really resonating with her and it's confirming for her that she definitely needs to reassess her relationship and maybe try to reconnect with her mom through music and I think that kind of sets up for that wake up ballad at the end and really gives us some context there as to what's going to happen next and I just think that scene is so simple and it can really be wrapped up just in their conversation about their bad days you know Julie says she's having a bad day and then Luke goes well I've been having a bad 25 years but then he goes and circles back and goes I know you've had a really bad day and it's just so sincere when it comes out of his mouth and I just think that just that interaction alone really and then having Reggie and Alex off in the corner I was just yeah I was just gonna point that out they're just listening yeah I think it's very important that when she does reveal that her mother passed away because they hadn't known that up to that point um and they're talking about music, that Reggie and Alex are there. Because while I love, as I just went on and on about, I love Luke and Julie as a friendship and as a ship in general romantically and all that good stuff. But I think it's great that the show isn't just Luke and Julie. It is the boys and Julie. And so for them to be there during that moment and not have it just be like, Luke comes back in he's like I just talked to Julie her mom is like you know she died you know like blah 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 they easily could have gone that route but they made sure that those boys were there for that moment and it Mm -hmm. wasn't just a Luke and Julie moment and I, I don't know I think that's important because those those platonic male female friendships are also very important and we don't get a lot of those in teen shows, especially because it's all about ships and things like that. But to have those strong bonds with people of different genders um, without necessarily leading to a romance, like really important. And it always enriches the story to do it that way. Yes. Yeah. I, I think um, that scene just solidifies. I know as we get into the season, people get caught up in who likes who. And these amazing relationships that they do add into the show um, and the ones that they don't, that they hint at. But I think this scene solidifies that this is about their connection as a band. Um, And then at the end of the day, the journey is the band as a whole. So nothing 
no plot point is ever going to happen where the four of them are not there together dealing with it. Um, it, you know, it's rare that we're going to see them go through these emotional journeys without the others present. So I think that was a really good, just to bring them all in from the very beginning, like we're all in this together, regardless of what happens. So I think for that, that was really great. And then they kind of go off on the separate journey after that with the three boys um, and let them kind of explore where they want to go on their musical journey before we bring Julie in and kind of let the audience know that she can sing and that she will be a part of that journey as well. Yeah. And that's where we, we see Alex bump into Caleb, which is another one of those things where if you're not paying attention to the show and you're kind of having it on in the background, you can miss that completely because even though obviously he's wearing the top hat and it's clearly Caleb and there's something there, if you, that's a very quick scene. So if you were to turn for 10 seconds, five seconds, you could miss it. I, d- I definitely think the first time I watched this season, I remember seeing Caleb. I remember him bumping into Alex. And then I immediately just didn't think it was important or something and forgot yeah. about it because it really was when I rewatched. I was like, oh, it's Caleb. Oh, okay. So for me, I definitely didn't pick up on it the first time that this guy was important in the way that he was going to be. Um, I do think it's important to note that he bumps into Alex first. Um, which really is a greater foreshadowing of the season to come and the fact that Alex meets Willie, who then brings him into Caleb's world. Again, we don't know why that happens. We know there's a reason. So it is interesting that it's Alex that has the connection to Caleb from the very beginning, um, whether that's through foreshadowing or deliberate like plot points. I don't know. But yeah, I do think it's something to note that he's the one that kind of starts it for the band going forward yeah okay so can we talk about wake up now because we need to uh, get to it it's so good it's so good um okay so i just have to say this is one of the most beautifully shot scenes i think i've ever seen in my entire life i can't i just i can't even properly express like how much the setting and the way this is shot adds to the emotional gravitas that comes with this scene with um the sun coming up and coming through and how that connects to the lyrics and the song she's singing and the way that Madison Reyes really portrays that emotion through her song. I mean, it's, it is so, so, so good. It is, I mean, just, I don't know. I'm like at a loss for words. It's such an amazing scene. I, I've literally gone back and I've watched that, just that scene many times. It just, even you just talking about it gives me chills. I know. You know, it's just one of those scenes that you, you know, you could just watch it without sound and it it would just be a masterpiece. Um, And then the sound coming in with that beautiful rendition of Wake Up, I think just brings it all together. But yeah, the cinematography that frames the scene is something else. I mean, just the, the fact that when Julie walks into the studio, it's dark, it's clearly like the sun hasn't come up yet and you don't really think much about it. But yeah, just as she starts those first couple of keys and you can see the sun start to come through the back window and kind of light behind her, I just, and it's the softest glow of sunlight and it just basks over the whole studio as the song picks up pace we see more sun flooding in and as she becomes more comfortable and more confident and she gets into the song more you see more sun and you see more and then the 
again, I, I can't really explain how perfect the reveal of the boys standing there behind her at the end is. It adds so much to the scene and to the characters. They're shook, obviously, by her musical talent because she was like, oh, I don't even play. That's my mom, you know? And then they're like, oh, okay, you're incredible. But also for after the song, you know, they're looking at each other like, wow, this girl is amazing. And when the song stops, there's just a beat of silence, dead air. And they're mm-hmm. just looking at each other and she's holding her mom's music sheets. And, the, you know, the scene doesn't stop immediately. They, they hold, they stay on that scene, stay on that moment, and then it shuts down. And it's just like, whew, I'm like, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Like, it's so perfect. It is the perfect way to end the episode. They couldn't have thought of something like any words spoken in that moment, it would have ruined it. They knew that dialogue wasn't going to do it justice. And I think it was important to give Julie that kind of moment with her mom in whatever way that it is coming. And I think having the boys there as kind of emotional support and them knowing not to step in, you know, from years of being as a band, you know, Julie hasn't had that experience yet. She hasn't got that unit and they have a unit and they see that she's, you know, kind of going through this process of mourning her mom and coming back into music. And so they know to take a step back and to just be there for her in the way that they can in that moment. And I think that was really smart on their part. I think they did a good job. The show did a good job of just using the other characters in that scene. So having the boys behind her and we can feel their presence before we even know they're there, which I think is really smart. Like we we have an idea that they're probably behind her, but then when it actually pans out and they are, it just, it's so sweet. But I think the family even, you know, it switches as she's ramping up the song. Yes. We see the dad walk out the front door because they can hear her playing from the house. And we see Carlos come out onto the balcony and there's just like this level of, you know, they're waking up themselves and it's. For them to hear her sing again is a very big deal. I'm literally going to cry. I'm like so emotional about it. It's so good. Because can you imagine being Ray, hearing your daughter like play that beautiful song after being so desperate and and worrying that she may never play again? And just her brother caring enough to, to also just be so happy. And this is like a total production side note, like whatever. But I like how when it, flips to the frame of Ray and Carlos they are the music it sounds muffled like I hate when a song is playing and then it's just like plastered on as a soundtrack where as like yeah it's like how when they're outside you can't hear the song quite as well so it's like you're hearing it from outside also from inside the garage and then when you move back to the garage the sound is clearer I like that little distinction that's just like a weird directional decision that I just like little things like that um again are just like meticulous things that I appreciate yeah it's the little details in every one of these scenes that just makes it and again I really encourage if someone's listening that hasn't rewatched the show multiple times to do it because you can't you don't pick up on stuff like this the first time around it you know it takes multiple rewatches to really just get all these little details and I think you know um I just this song for me is so emotional I really think we talk about Unsaid Emily being an emotional song later on I don't even like saying it because it feels like an omen to say Unsaid Emily in the first episode Emily dun 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 (laughs) It's just like this dark cloud rolls over. But 
yeah, we talk about how emotional unsaid Emily is for Luke and his relationship with his parents. But I don't think we initially realized that wake up for Julie is her unsaid Emily. You know, that's her mom's words to her that she wrote before she died to help pick her up after she's gone. You know, that it's a it's a very uplifting and powerful message within the song, but it's coming from a woman that's no longer in Julie's life that she wishes was there. And I think that's just the power of that is just so emotional. And, you know, if you start to kind of picture Julie's mom saying those words to her daughter as she sings, it just brings it all together. And it just, it'll bring tears just as much as Unsaid Emily will, really. I know. And and a little bit of her, her redefined style. I, I don't think that she is peak at her style. I think that her style progresses um, all the way to, I would say, Edge of Great. And that's where, like, her full metamorphosis is finished. But while she's still sort of in baggy clothes, they are a little more fitted. The hat is gone. The glasses are gone. You can see her. She is evolving. And that's that's a huge moment for her. And we'll see that continue, you know, next episode for sure as well. Yeah, I think Julie's outfit in this final scene is really reminiscent of the style that we've seen from her throughout this episode. But it's very clean, very simple. You know, it looks like she's kind of, you've woken up and gone to take a shower and she's kind of washed all this grief off her and her clothes and her attitude in that moment reflect that that she's kind of stepping out from that blanket of grief that she's been wrapped up in and I just think that the simplicity of that purple sweater with those plaid cargo pants was really quite smart in the moment I agree and so yeah we end with her clutching the song and the lyrics so beautiful the boys staring at her and i like how in the next episode we will pick up right where we leave off which i think is important yeah we get to kind of sit in that moment for a little bit more and yes all our eyes out until there's no more tears left yeah thanks julie and the phantoms we appreciate yeah. it took us on a roller coaster even just in the first episode so we were are in for quite a ride as we continue this journey through our podcasting <laughs> experience but that pretty much does it for for 101 wake up right we did it yeah we did it we did it but I know that we as writers and as creatives we want to give credit where credit is due so let's go ahead and just talk a little bit more about the songs that we hear in this episode yeah so I think we definitely can't finish this episode off without talking about the two songs that kind of bookend this episode you know we have now or never at the very beginning and then wake up at the end and it just comes full circle Now or Never is written by Doug Rockwell and Tova Litvin, performed by Charlie Gillespie, Owen Joyner, Jeremy Shada, and Taylor Carr. And then, of course, we have Wake Up at the End, uh, written by Anne Preven and performed by Madison Rays. So, favorite song of the episode? Did we have one? What do you prefer? You prefer Wake Up or you prefer Now or Never? You know what? I'm, I'm sorry to do this on our first podcast, but I'm not going to pick one, Cat. Okay, fair. You know what? They're both two of my favorite songs on the soundtrack you know I've I've touched on the fact that they're footnotes to this episode and I think they both kind of have the same message they both 
have the same effect on the episode in terms of introducing us to both characters. Um, now or never, you know, yes, if I had to pick like my favorite song that I just, it's that headbanger bop with some serious bars. I love it. It would be now or never. Um, it's just the foreshadowing too for me. And that song is just incredible. Um, but I think with Wake Up, it's just such an essential song to Julie's origin story and, you know, her unsaid Emily, if you will. Um, so both of them are important. And I think they're both essential on my playlist right now. So I'm not going to pick one. Fair. Um, I would say, I mean, obviously, I'm going to say Now or Never is my favorite song from this show. So I'm going to pick Now or Never. But I will say that the lyrics of Wake Up are some of the best lyrics of the show, in my opinion. So there's credit there for sure. A wake Up is beautiful and it is her Unstead Emily moment. And it's definitely like probably my top three or four songs. But Now or Never is just so in the vein of what I would listen to. Like it would be on a mix with all my other songs that I have like on, you know, on my playlist. So that's my number one. So I'm going to say Now or Never. But Wake Up is unbelievably beautiful. So no shade to that song at all. So favorite song lyric then? I don't know if I can choose. I really think that the lyrics of Wake Up are all so beautiful and speak so much to the story of Julie and her relationship with her mother and also the relationship to her mother's death, honestly, which is... um I don't know, serendipitous almost that her mother and her worked on this song before she passed away. And it was almost like foreshadowing how um, Julie would come to feel in her grief. So, so yeah, I don't think I can choose. I think that anything in Wake Up is really beautiful altogether. It just encapsulates like the perfect moment. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I, I mean, I did pick one um, just because I think, again, Wake Up, every line in that song is absolutely perfect. Um, but for me, I think that initial lyric, you know, the wake up, wake up, if it's all you do, is so important. I think especially right now, people really just need something to tell them that, you know, if all you do today is wake up, that's perfectly okay. You know, there's nothing wrong. Absolutely. With that. And I think that's a great thing for Julie as well, because she really feels this pressure to just jump back into music and, you know, be the superstar musician. And her mom's basically telling her, you know, if all you do is wake up in the morning and that's all you're able to do for that day, that's okay. She understands that her grief's going to be, you know, a journey and it's not always going to be easy. So I think for me, that line really just resonated. And I think it's a, it's a good lyric for anybody that's going through a hard time right now. Totally agree. Okay, so wrap up. I think we pretty much said everything we want to say about this episode in all its glory. My final thoughts are it was a great first episode. I think that it introduced us to this world in a perfect way and could not have been executed better. Yeah. I came into this just looking for, you know, a lighthearted binge watch. I really was not expecting the level of sophistication and talent and just sheer comedy that's in this first episode. And I think it's just one big warm hug of good TV that I'm so thankful for. It truly is. I don't even really want to pick a standout or notable performance because I think everybody just off the bat because I think a lot of times 
with shows, it takes actors a while to sit into their characters. And I feel like everyone just jumped into this show and this world just so perfectly right off the bat. I mean, they really just encapsulate their characters perfectly. Um, so I think everybody deserves a shout out. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Okay, but let me let me ask you this before we go. Okay. Who is your favorite character and which character do you most relate to? Two very different questions, by the way. Oh, which one? Okay, which is my favorite? Again, I don't know if I can pick one, especially with this episode. I gravitate towards Alex because, first of all, Owen Joyner's comedic timing is insane. Like, the guy just gets gets the timing of it. The comedy is so simple and, you know, it's the kind of comedy I grew up with and it sends me every time. I think just his little, you know, where he starts to kind of uh, argue with someone about something and then he just goes off into the, okay. And he just kind of does this (laughs) depleted, like, okay. And it's just, that sends me every time. So for my love of comedy, I think Alex really wins me over in this episode. Um, I will say I didn't, I wasn't gravitating towards Luke in this episode right off the bat. I really love how interactive Luke is. Like he, he is constantly touching things. He's constantly moving his hands around, you know, he's very like, he's very in your face, interactive, kind of, you know, passionate and you get that from him, but you don't see a lot more right off the bat. So I'm right. I think it took a little bit for Luke to really win me over. And then Reggie was just kind of like, Reggie is your favorite regardless. You don't get a say, you know, he's just, he's that lovable goofball. Totally. I feel like it needs to be said that Julie should likely be the standout just because I know as we get into these episodes, the guys take such a big journey, but she is our protagonist. She really commands this season and especially this episode. She just establishes herself as such a strong protagonist. And I'm really just blown away by Madison Reyes being that this was her first project. It's incredible. And the amount of like depth and charisma that she brings. I mean, it's just so rare. She, it looks like she's been acting for years. And I, I mean, I really haven't seen this kind of potential from someone since Zendaya, you know, in, in the Disney days. So agreed. So she really, if I had to pick a standout, it would be her because I feel like she's going to get lost a little bit in the plot and the guys as time goes on, but she's always that rock that's there. Relating to a character, uh, I definitely think, yeah, for me, it'd probably also be Alex. You know, just his general, the anxiousness that's there, you know, nervousness, I can always relate to that, but... I think just his way of dealing with things where he's kind of just gives up eventually or, you know, he just is there for the ride. I want to think I'm like that a little bit. And I think he's just his overall joy for the world. Like he's just he's in it. You know, he's got that sarcastic edge to him, but he genuinely is just having a good time um, and he's good to do whatever. And I, I want to think I'm like that a little bit that, you know, I can be that easygoing while also being stressed out of my mind. So. <laughs> I'd I'd say I'd relate. Cool. How about you? Um, in this episode, my favorite character. I don't know if I can pick again. I don't know if I can pick in this episode a favorite character. I think that everybody establishes themselves very, very well. Um, and I think it's kind of it would be a tie between Julie and the guys. I just love their dynamic as a whole. They're just kind of a unit. 
that will change per episode. Like I'll definitely have like a standout. Um, I think overall throughout the series, Reggie might be my fave um, just because I don't know. I just, I just love that character. But as far as who I relate to the most, definitely Alex. I feel like I am like the female version of this character. I'm sarcastic, but I'm also super sensitive. Like I would for sure be the one that was crying for 25 years. Like 100% would not stop crying. I cry over everything. Um, I'm, I also deal with anxiety. I deal with it in like the very similar vein to him. Um, I don't know, just everything about him is like very relatable to me. So, so definitely Alex as well, for sure. He's a very relatable ghost. Yeah. Yes. He, he deals with the afterlife in a way that I feel we could, yeah, definitely relate to. Yeah. Well, that, that pretty much does it for our first episode. We made it, Alicia. We did it. We did it. So yeah, that pretty much wraps up this episode for us. If you liked what you heard, you can get in contact with us on our socials, on Instagram at Julie and the podcast, Twitter at Julie and the pod, and email Julie and the podcast at gmail.com. Share your favorite moments from the show with us. Yeah, be sure to email us, especially, and we can give you a shout out on the podcast. We'll talk about anything you want. We really want to be interactive and as collaborative as possible with this podcast, guys. It's really just all about keeping the conversation going and getting a second season for julie and the phantoms so that about does it for this week but we will see you next week we are talking about season one episode two bright and can't wait to see you there we are julie and the podcasters tell Tell your your friends. friends